0: we're doing that so children can be dismissed for nursery also i should say the the update is not simply because of of the special offering we are planning on doing a monthly update um focusing on at least one of our our missionary families or one of our missionaries that we support and um so that's something we want to try to do to just to keep in front of you um our missionaries there's ways that we can be reminded to pray for them And also to show where the offering that you are taking up, part of the offering you take up every week, goes to support them. So if you have your Bibles, turn in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 52 is where we'll be reading. Then if we could all just jump on a plane with Ronnie and Gary, tomorrow we could go to this place, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Dark Night in the Garden is the title of this morning's message. Let me begin by reading. I read from the ESV, but please follow along in whatever translation you have in front of you. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not and Jesus said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went out to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that you would help us. I ask for your help that what I say would simply direct our attention to the word to your word, and that you would put your spirit of power grow in our faith. Well, our verses this morning uh, take place in a familiar setting, just as we were familiar with the scene of, of last week of Jesus in the upper room. We, we can picture what that might have looked like. We might have a same picture, a same kind of familiarity with Jesus here in the garden of Gethsemane. It's a familiar place. John tells us that not only is it a familiar place for us, but it's a familiar place for the disciples. John tells us that they had often came here with Jesus. It was a place where Jesus had often retreated from the crowds to spend time alone and with his disciples. Now, I had to think about that as and think about the memories Jesus' disciples might have had as they walked through the garden walls and into the Garden of Gethsemane that night. What would those garden walls say if they could speak what had they witnessed between Jesus and his disciples that had taken place there in the past and my mind went to an old hymn I don't necessarily remember us singing it at church I remember kind of an idea of a special music but the song the hymn I come to the garden alone and the chorus of that song says that there in the garden the son of God he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Now we can sing that song, but the disciples knew that in a way that none of us, no one else has ever known. The the joy they shared as they tarried with Jesus, none other has ever known. And much of that joy, much of that tarrying had taken place in this garden. This garden had been a place of the sweetest moments between Jesus and his disciples, But tonight, the tune would be very different, and a different hymn might be sung, the hymn Go to Dark, Gethsemane. Tonight, Gethsemane, on this night that we read, Gethsemane is and will be a place of darkness. Jesus warns his disciples of this as they are making their way. They're opening passages as they are walking to the garden from the upper room in Jerusalem. And as they are walking, he tells them what this night will hold here in the garden. And tonight he says the words that were written by Zechariah, the prophet, will be fulfilled. And those words are in Zechariah 13. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The shepherd is about to be struck the sheep are about to be scattered that's what this night holds for jesus and his disciples in the garden of gethsemane In the midst of it jesus says you will all fall away shepherd will be struck the sheep will be scattered and you will all fall away fall away here does not mean a final falling away doesn't mean a permanent falling away but in this context that that word means that they will lose their courage commentator by the name of Wessel says it means not that the disciples will lose their faith in Jesus, but that their courage will fail them and they will forsake him being Jesus. If we read on in the Zechariah passage that Jesus quotes from, we see that this scattering of the sheep would scatter them into places that are places of refinement and places of testing. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and reading on to verse 9 and I will put those sheep or the third really they're all going to be scattered he says I will gather a third of them to myself and he says that third I will put them into the fire and I will refine them as one refines silver and I will test them as gold is tested we know if we're familiar with Not only the Bible's use of those words, but just the reality of refinement and reality of testing that it is not a pleasant experience for the one going through it. The disciples are about to go through it. And and though in many ways they will fail, notice what Jesus says to them in the rest of verse 28. He says, but after I'm raised. He says, you will all fall away, the shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered, and then here comes one of those great but statements in the Bible. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee, and and you will join me in Galilee. Even on this dark night in Gethsemane, there is still the hope of the gospel. But first comes darkness. Now, I'm on a deadline with my sermons. I've made it so I have to get to the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and that has put a lot of consternation into my, uh, my, my studies. This would very easily be two sermons into one, but we're going to combine it into one. But here in the garden, what we see first on this night of darkness is we see Peter, and we see Peter's pride. Peter's pride, Peter and his pride. We all know the saying that, that pride comes before the fall, and many of us have probably experienced that reality and experienced the truth of that ourselves, that uh, just when we think things are going good and we begin to say something about that or boast about it, we know what's coming next. The downfall is coming. Well, on this night, Peter discovers this truth for himself. But the place I want us to see Peter's pride is, is not in his boasting in the opening verses, although that's a sign of it. But the place where we see his pride or where I want us to see his pride is in his sleep in the middle verses. His sleeping, which is really a sign of his prayerlessness. We could add a third P to this point. Prayerless Peter's pride. But I couldn't say that too often, so I just put Peter's pride. But it's evident in his prayerlessness in the moment of temptation. Our verses begin with one of the stories that makes us love Peter and and, and relate to Peter so well, and that's because he has a habit of speaking too soon and putting his foot in his mouth. Does anyone know anyone like that? You Don't don't nudge the person next to you if if you're tempted to do that. But this is why we're so sympathetic with with Peter, because we, we see ourselves in him. And here in the garden is a prime example of that. After Jesus says that all will fall away, Peter steps forward and he says, I don't know about the rest of these guys, Jesus, but I will never fall away from you. I would not. Jesus then tells Peter what this falling away will be, what this will look like, at least for Peter. And he says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Denial is how Peter will fall away. But notice, not denial once, not denial twice, but three times, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice mark is the only one who records this crowing of the rooster twice all the others simply put say that it will be happen before the rooster crows but mark tells us that it's even worse than that jesus tells peter peter you're going to have a warning crow Next week, we'll see that that's exactly what happens. Peter denies Jesus once the rooster crows off in the distance for the first time. But Peter keeps right on going and denies him two more times before the next crow. At the time of this story, at the time of Jesus telling Peter this, it's it's late in the night. It's approaching midnight, if not after midnight. And the roosters, they they said, started crowing at 3 a.m. I discovered that sleeping by the roosters at Ronnie's. A farm one morning they, they crow pretty early um but at least in jerusalem these roosters started crowing at, at 3 a.m it's after midnight not only is is peter's denial certain but it's imminent In only a few hours peter you're going to deny me what is peter's response peter's response is is no way emphatically he says no way jesus in fact i will die with you before i deny you now, Peter's the one who says this, but Mark tells us that all the others chime in and say the same thing. But as I tell my kids, it's always the loudest voice that gets noticed and gets the blame. And I, I know that because I was always the loudest voice and I always got noticed and got the blame. So Peter gets the blame. He gets the, to be the example of this. So as they go into the garden, Jesus decides to put Peter's loyalty to the test, just said you will never deny me let's test this jesus or let's test this peter and he takes peter james and john deeper into the garden with him as he prays now we've seen peter james and john go off together and i think the last time at mount of transfiguration i said it's maybe because they needed watching a little more than the others teachers always keep the problem children close to them but but think about these three men peter james and john and and, and particularly with what we just saw Peter do. All of these three men have just made this boast that no matter what, they are ready to suffer with Jesus. You go back to Mark 10, James and John say, I'm ready to drink the cup. I'm ready to be baptized with the baptism of of your suffering, Jesus. I'm ready for this. And Jesus says, okay, come into the garden with me. Stein says, now those who bravely claimed their willingness to suffer for Jesus would have the opportunity to prepare for it. Just as Jesus would prepare for his suffering by watching and praying in Gethsemane. But instead of watching and praying, we, we know that these three spend their time sleeping, getting their rest. Now we could excuse these three. It's been a long day. If we think about their day, they've just eaten a big Passover meal. Their, their stomachs are full. It's late at night. And we could excuse them, but we would be excusing them because we know that if we were there, we would be joining them. We would be sleeping as well. But remember what Jesus has just told them. All of you are going to fall away. All of you are going to lose your courage. All of you are going to deny me. In just a few hours, you are going to fail. And how do they prepare for that moment of temptation? Jesus comes back to them the first time and, and, and tells them Simon. And just, just notice first of all that we refer to him as Peter. We know that Simon was his original name. Jesus gave him a new name, Peter, which means rock. But Jesus says, you're not acting like a rock. It's like when your mother uses your middle name. You know you're in trouble. Simon. Simon. Are you? You just boasted you would be willing to die with me, but you can't even watch with me one hour. You can't even stay awake. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the, the verse that drew my attention most this week with this point. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, Peter, but the flesh is weak. Spirit here refers not to the Holy Spirit. It's not capitalized spirit, but it refers to their human spirit, their their will, their desire. And Peter, and Jesus says, Peter, I know your spirit is willing. Peter, I know that you do not want to fall away. Peter, I know that you are resolved to remain faithful. But Peter, here is what you're missing. Your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. Peter, you may not want to fail me, but want to is not enough in the face of temptation. Peter, you need to pray. And I say this is Peter's pride because Peter is assuming he can do this on his own. That's why he doesn't pray. Now, he might not say that out loud, but his prayerlessness is his way of saying, I've got this. I know temptation is coming, Jesus. I know that you said we'll fall away, but Jesus, I've got this. Jesus, I am strong enough. And Jesus says, Peter, you may be willing, but Peter, you are weak. Your flesh is weak. And then as if to prove the point, Mark says their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy. They're reminded and they point to us to the reminder of the weakness of our flesh. Paul tells us in Romans that every day, in a sense, we wake up in Gethsemane. Every day we wake up in a place where we are in a battle with the weakness of our flesh. Romans seven eighteen says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, And here, do you just see this statement from Jesus? For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have the desire. I have the spirit. My spirit is willing. I have the want to, but I don't have the ability in my flesh. Desire is not enough. Your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. Weak in Mark 14 could be translated as sick. Or, or or ill. Your flesh is weak. Your flesh is sick. Your flesh is ill because your flesh is fallen. Even though we have been transformed by the grace of God, that transformation takes place within a fallen body. And we will not be done with that fallen body until the day Jesus returns or we go to be with Him. The Westminster Confession of Faith talking about sanctification. I, I love this language. It talks about sanctification taking place In this body of flesh and because the spirit takes place with the the battle of the spirit and the flesh take place within us, it is an irreconcilable and continual war. The battle between the flesh and the spirit, as long as we are on earth, is a irreconcilable. It cannot be reconciled because they cannot coexist and it is continual throughout the, the entirety of our lives. In Galatians, it tells us this. Verse, verse 17 of chapter 5, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And there, there you notice it is capital Spirit, against the Holy Spirit, against what God wants us to do. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The things of, the God, of God and the things of the flesh are opposed to each other. And every day we are faced with the temptation to follow the things of the flesh as opposed to the things of God. Yet how many of us enter our day the way Peter entered the garden that night? I got this. Now, we might not say it, but our prayerlessness is evidence of it. And our weakness in the face of temptation is the... In the garden, Peter's pride, but really our pride is evident. Peter did not take the warnings of Jesus serious. But do we? Do we take the warnings of Scripture? The warnings to flee from temptation? The warnings to make no provision of the flesh to satisfy its evil desires? The the warning that our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour you? The warning that in the last days many false teachers will rise to lead astray even the elect if possible? Do we believe these warnings? If so, do we prepare for them? Do we enter our day like Peter, prayerless, forgetting the weakness of our flesh? I got this. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh. We see Peter's pride in the face of temptation. From Peter we move to Jesus, and from pride we move to sorrow. and We see the Savior's sorrow. The Savior's sorrow. After leading Peter, James, and John deeper in the garden, Jesus now leaves them and travels even deeper. And as he does, a a change begins to come over Jesus. And now these three men had seen a change come over Jesus in the past. We mentioned the Mount of Transfiguration. That was a glorious change where they saw the glory of Jesus being revealed before their eyes. But this time that change is much different. The change is not from into glory, but the change is to one of sorrow verses 33 through 34 and jesus began to be greatly distressed this is before he leaves them he's right in front of them jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled and he said to peter james and john my soul is sorrowful even to death now we can we can read that but we need to think about what is being said that the language that mark uses there is about as extreme as you can get he was greatly distressed he was troubled, and he was so sorrowful he was about to give in to death. One commentator said, Greatly distressed and troubled describe an acute, extremely acute emotion, a compound of bewilderment, fear, uncertainty, and anxiety, nowhere else portrayed in such vivid terms as here. J.B. Phillips translates this as, he began to be horror stricken and deeply depressed and said, my heart is nearly breaking. The REB translation says, horror and anguish overwhelmed him. Edward says, nothing in the Bible, nothing in all of the Bible compares to Jesus's agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Nowhere do you find the depth of emotion that is being experienced as we do here. Jesus says again, the sorrow is so great, it's, it's about to kill him. He, he almost didn't make it to the cross because he is so overwhelmed with sorrow. And Luke, we read that it's at this point that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. This is no exaggeration from Jesus or from Mark. He is extremely sorrowful. As he begins to pray, he falls to the ground. Now, Jewish prayers, even Jewish laments, they would stand and they would raise their arms to heaven to pray, but Jesus can't even stand. He falls on his face to pray. But the question is why? Why this great distress? Why this sorrow that almost kills him? What is it that brings Jesus to this point? Is it simply his death? None of us like the idea of facing our death. Jesus here is only 33, roughly 33 years old. He's only had a three-year ministry. Is he upset and agonizing over the fact that his ministry is cut short? So many more people he could heal. So many more people he could teach. Is it the mode of his death that he faces? Is Is it the cross? Certainly that would cause anguish and fear, and we'll see that over the next few weeks. The suffering that Jesus experienced on the way to the cross and on the cross was the greatest suffering imaginable. In fact, they created a new word for it when they when they described the pain of the cross, excruciating. There was not a, a word to describe the pain that he experienced on the cross, so they made up a new one. Excruciating from the cross. But as many commentators pointed out, how many martyrs do we read? that have gone to similar deaths, much more composed. They go to the stake where they would be burnt alive. They go silently. Some even go singing joyfully. No, it is more than the physical death on the cross that brings Jesus to this point. But it's what will take place on the cross. In his prayer, Jesus asked the Father that if it would be possible to remove this cup from me, in the Old Testament, the, the, when the word cup is used in this way, it's referred to a cup of judgment. In particular, it's referred to God's judgment. What overwhelms Jesus with sorrow is that on the cross, He will drink down to the last drop the cup of God's wrath for the sins. Of and the reason that He will experience the wrath of God is because of what we read in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, we love this verse. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And we love to quote that verse. We love to celebrate that verse and think about how that verse applies to us and the reality that it has secured for us. But think about the reality that it means for Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin. He became. He was made to be sin this is why jesus cries out is there any other way and the answer is no and god's perfect plan of salvation and redemption there was no other way for the salvation for salvation outside of this jesus was made sin and just think about that in terms of your sin your sin as an individual all of it placed on jesus Those sins that you have repented of but hope no one ever finds out about. Those deeds of darkness that fill you with agony every time you think about them. But not only the big sins, all the little sins that we commit every day. Sins of doing what we should not do and sins of doing what we should not do. All of them collected as it were and accumulated and gathered together and in one moment put on Jesus Now multiply that out from the first man, Adam, to the last man, the one who will be saying as Jesus comes through the clouds, he or she will be declaring Jesus is Lord and Jesus will appear. Every single person who lived, who receives the gift of salvation, receives that gift because their sins, all of them, were placed on Jesus. We celebrate the miraculous conversions We celebrate the man who on who on death row and whose deeds are too horrific to even mention in a context like this. He receives salvation. Hallelujah, we say his sins. He sets free from his sins. But how is he set free from his sins? His sins are placed on Jesus on the cross. The woman who spent her life in prostitution, the man who cheated thousands of people for years, the drug addict, the porn addict, the murderers, the rapist We call on all of them to repent. We say, wouldn't it be wonderful if they turn from their sins and turn to Jesus? And it would be, but realize what that means. James Edwards says, Jesus answered for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world. This is why he falls in the garden. In his book, The King's Cross, which is just a commentary of sorts of Mark, Tim Keller writes, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath. The abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus begins to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when He became separated from His Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that. And he staggered. Do you see the cost of your salvation? John Calvin writes, It is our wisdom to have a fit sense of how much our salvation costs the Son of God. It is our wisdom to have a fit sense of how much our salvation costs the Son of God. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews writes, how can you return to those sins which, which cost the Son of God such suffering on the cross? It's like trampling the Son of God under our feet to turn back to sin. Look at the cross. Look at the cost but perhaps even stronger than we see on the cross, look here in the garden. Salvation is the free gift of God, Romans tells us, and it is free for us, but it was costly for Jesus. It was not a cheap grace or a cheap salvation that we can take hold of and simply go on and live the way we want to live. Jesus cries out to the Father in this moment. He says, if there is any other way, and the word he uses to cry out is the word, I'm not sure if I have it up on here, but yeah, it's Abba. Abba, Father. This isn't a word that Jews would have typically used to describe God. It's a word that we're encouraged to use to describe God, but it's a word of intimacy. It's a word of relationship. It's it's the word Papa or, or Daddy. Jesus in the garden cries out, Daddy. Whatever any of your kids ever cried out that name in desperation? If you have, you know the experience that you feel in that moment. You, you, you run to that child. You, you want to do whatever you can to help and to alleviate their suffering, their pain, their confusion. But what is the father's answer? The father's answer is Silence. Not because He does not love His Son. And we don't view this as, as the Father doing something against the will of the Son. We we read it early in our Scripture that this salvation was planned before the beginning of time. Jesus had submitted Himself to this plan before the beginning of time. But now here in the moment we see the agony and the suffering. We we read Hebrews and it says, For the joy set before Him, He went to the cross. But the joy was not the cross. The joy was what the cross accomplished and what laid on the other side. But was with trepidation it was with anguish it was with it is with suffering and sorrow that jesus goes to the cross and the father says there is no other way so jesus says not my will not my will but yours be done throughout his ministry we've seen time and time again jesus say i'm here to do my father's will i'm here to do my father's will and here in the garden despite that what he knows that means he says i'm here to do my father's will we talked about learning from Peter's prayerlessness in the face of temptation, but here we can learn from Jesus's prayerfulness. Sinclair Ferguson writes of this, he says, This teaches us that it is not necessarily wrong to ask for something which God does not intend to do, so long as our hearts are prepared to submit to His will whatever that is. It's not wrong for us to plead for those things that God has not intended to do. Now, often we don't know what God intends to do about the things we pray about. But Ferguson said it's not wrong, and Jesus teaches us, it's not wrong to plead with God for an outcome that might not be His plan. But when we do, we must do so with hearts that are prepared to submit to His will, whatever that means. That's why it's good when we're pleading with God to follow Jesus' pattern By closing with these words, this is what I want, God, but not my will, but yours be done. Stein says, herein lies faith. Herein lies faith. The ability to request openly another destiny than the one God has chosen, but ultimately submitting to God's will whatever this may To openly request another destiny than the one God has chosen, but ultimately submitting to God's will, whatever this may involve, that is what faith looks like. Three times Jesus pleads with the Father and three times He returns to find the disciples asleep. But on the third time He says, this is enough. The time has come. My betrayer is at hand and the scene in the garden changes from sorrow to solitude as Jesus is left alone. Peter's pride, the Savior's sorrow, the disciples' desertion. As Jesus says those words, the time is at hand, my betrayer is here. Judas enters the scene. Mark says that he enters, or enters with a crowd. John says he comes in with a Roman cohort, which would be 600 to a 1,000 Roman soldiers. The garden quickly is very full of people, full of angry people, full of armed people. But all the Gospels tell us that at the head of it all is Judas. And the religious leaders finally having their moment to fulfill their long-awaited plot to kill Jesus. Now, we don't have time to look over the betrayal of Judas. You you can read it. It's straightforward. You you can read it and, and see the sleaziness of Judas in it all. You can see the chaos. And Mark doesn't tell us it's Peter. And if this is Peter writing, we might know why Mark doesn't tell us it's Peter. That he cuts off the guy's ear, Malchus's ear. But again, what I kind of caught my attention or before that but we see at the end of all that chaos and confusion all left and fled and all is referring to the disciples all 11 of them leave jesus alone they abandon him those who said we are willing to die with you run into the night scared but not only do we see the disciples abandon jesus mark has a weird ending to this night in the garden None of the other gospel writers included. And it's this man running away naked. The young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, church tradition tells us that this is John Mark. This is the author of Mark. This is Mark putting himself into the story. And this is why Mark's gospel is so vivid, so detailed, because he saw it all. Even when the disciples were asleep, Mark saw it all. Some think that if the Last Supper took place in, in his house, Judas came. I Remember, Judas leaves in the middle of the meal. Judas gets this band of people. They come to the house, find out Jesus isn't there, and then they go to the garden. Mark is sleeping. He hears them. He quickly wraps himself in a bedsheet and runs out and follows, follows them to see what's going on. Again, that's church tradition. But I think there is something significant about this unnamed naked man in the garden as Jesus because we have seen this before. We have seen this before. Just think about this. A naked man in a garden, running away from God, as the presence and the power of sin is falling. Genesis chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden. As Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit he told them not to eat of, sin comes into the world and Adam and Eve realize that they are naked they are exposed they attempt to cover themselves with with fig leaves much like Mark, a trider this unnamed man tried to cover himself with a bed sheet but they were soon exposed for their nakedness and god came to the garden and adam ran in the new testament in several places jesus is referred to as the second adam or the final adam The one who came to start a new race of humanity, those who have been born again, a new line of humanity. And one of the songs that that we sing, we sing, see the true and better Adam referring to Jesus. And, And what do we see of this new and better Adam here in the garden? He does not run. And I love the reminder of this man running naked out of the garden, pointing us back to the first Adam because it reminds us that though the first Adam sinned and with that brought sin to every descendant of Adam that has ever lived, God did not give up on his plan. In fact, we see ourselves, we see humanity in this picture of this man running away. All have deserted Jesus. But yet Jesus has done what no one else could do or has done. We love to read the Jesus Storybook Bible at our home. If you have kids, this is a great resource for family devotions or just to read to them. And I don't know if they enjoy it more than I do, but we love to read from this. And I want to just read in closing the the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author, the way that she depicts Adam and Eve leaving the garden after their sin, after God says they can't be in the garden anymore, she writes. Well, in another story, it would all be over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again, and one day he would wipe away every tear From their eyes. You see, no matter what, in in spite of everything, God loved his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and though they would run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Like lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against that snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day God himself would come. Passage began by reminding us that Jesus knew what was coming. You will all fail me, Jesus said. You will all fall away. The shepherd will be struck. The sheep will be scattered. But I'm going ahead of you into Galilee. Isaiah 53 looked ahead to that day and described it like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him. The... This is what we see in the garden. The sheep, we have all gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him iniquity. Why? Because you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. One day, God himself. Let me close in prayer. And as I do, let me invite the worship team to come forward to prepare to sing a closing song with us. Father, we thank you that you, despite our sin, not only the sin that we have committed, but the sins you know we will commit, despite the fact that you knew that all will fall away, that you did not give up on your plan to bring redemption to this world, to us. Father, this morning, as we have seen Jesus in the garden, may we be reminded of the weightiness of our sin. May we not turn to it, turn back to it, but may we run from it? May we remember that we can't run from it on our own, but we need your help. We need we are dependent upon you. we need to pray. Father, would this be a reminder to us, Father, that though our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak, must come and ask for your strength. Let me invite you to stand.